Welcome to PB and Justice, the Price Benowitz podcast, where you join our hosts, Dane Phillips and Mitch Greenberg, on their journey to prove what makes our lawyers different and why our lawyers have chosen to pursue a life of fighting for justice. This episode is hosted by Mitch Greenberg, the law champion. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Mitch Greenberg, the law champion, with our Price Benowitz podcast, which we believe may be called PB and Justice. So I'm here today with Natalia Siegermeister. Natalia is one of our phenomenal immigration attorneys. We're just going to get to know each other. So good morning, Natalia. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing well. Happy to be on the podcast that's tentatively called PB and Justice, right? Okay. Yeah, Justice. It's nice right, to see bad. someone uh, without a mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the way we have to do it these days, so. We yeah, do. What are we going to do? Uh, for people viewing this years from now, uh, <laughs> we're in the middle of a pandemic, COVID-19, so it's social and physical isolation. People aren't allowed to breathe near each other, have to stay six feet away. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, mm -hmm. For us who do a lot of trial work, that just sucks because the yeah. no jury trials, district courts aren't doing much except emergencies. Yeah. So how is it affecting you? Well, so right now the immigration courts are only doing detained docket. So that means that only people who are in detention centers and they appear via video normally. So in that way, they're not exposing the judges to any sort of infection. But even then, um, judges are liberally granting motions to appear telephonically for attorneys because if an attorney were to be present in the court, you have to bring your own PPE. And these days, that's so hard to come by to have your, your masks and have your gloves and all of that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm appearing telephonically where, when I can. Which is probably making your job easier. In that respect, yes. Uh, the detained cases are so strange because even final hearings are done with the person via video. So you don't get the emotional uh, impact of having someone testify as to what's going to happen if they're returned home. It, you don't get that emotional connection. Right. And so it's very cut and dry and, and very based upon the the legal facts rather than the emotional component, the discretionary component for an asylum case. So it, it's a little bit better. It's convenient for me uh, for detained cases. Now the cases that are non-detained, those have just been completely postponed. So I have no idea what's gonna happen with those or the ones that are coming up in early August that I have lined up. Um, so I'm just basically telling the clients we'll have to wait and see. And it's very hard to prepare for those. Yeah. You mentioned the, the emotional component being better face-to-face. -face. Uh, motor Vehicles and Office of Administrative Hearings is now doing remote dockets, video dockets. And I had a client who I offered it to, and he said to me, no, because I think I'm better face-to-face -face and I want them to feel my emotions about this, how much I need my license. Yeah. So yeah, it is a big thing. Back when I was in law school, for I guess it was criminal procedure, uh, where'd you go to law school? Georgetown. Oh, wow. Uh, so at University of Baltimore, which was the only school I applied, our, uh, our criminal procedure professor, Byron Warkin, was involved in this case. Uh, it was up in, in front of the Supreme Court, I believe. And one of the issues was uh, about the child witness 
testifying remotely, testifying by video. And Byron's defense team was arguing that was really, uh, that deprived the defendant of confrontation because you miss so many clues the further distant you are. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it, it's a good point. We are much better seeing each other, watching each other. So many little movements make a difference. Yeah, I, I agree. And I don't know wh why it is that the detained docket has been allowed to continue in this fashion. Because when I first started practicing, they would bring in the detainees in person uh, to the immigration court. And then they stopped doing that. They made them all exclusively video. Uh, and I don't know if there haven't been any constitutional cha um, challenges to this, um, but it seems like that seems to be the status quo that all detained dockets is always via video. And thankfully, uh, the cases that I have had individual hearings for detained dockets, uh, I have a, a good success rate with those. So it's just you know, making sure that the client understands that you're at a disadvantage. So you have not noticed a difference in the results? No, no. And I am not sure whether the the judges are mindful of the fact that the person is appearing via video. So it's very hard to gauge their the emotional components or case or even like the, the video delay that sometimes occurs. Um, it, it just seems like maybe they've assigned the right judges to detain dockets that they are, you know, they're conscious of the fact that you know it, you're missing an element the discretionary element to the granting of certain immigration benefits but it seems like because of everything you've mentioned uh i've noticed this that, that the the judges and commissioners are tending to be more lenient more liberal yeah i maybe that that's what's been going on because with... if the if our clients win then they don't get appealed. <laughs> There's no challenge. So yeah, uh, that's, that's a bonus. So what got you into immigration? Well, I wasn't born in the United States. So I was born in the Dominican Republic and I came to the States when I was six. And my parents and I have had to go through this entire procedure that I help my clients with, applying for a green card, applying. I became a citizen in 2010. So I'm about to hit in October my 10 year anniversary of being a US citizen. Um, so I completely understand um, the emotional impact, the roller coaster you go through navigating the immigration system in the States. And once I went to law school, trying to find, okay, so what is going to be my niche? What's going to be my path? Uh, immigration, I took one intro immigration course and who, who was I kidding? This is what, what this is what I was going to do. Yeah. How long have you been practicing? since 2011 after i graduated but i was doing externships before then doing immigration work nice it, it's good to i mean i love what i do uh but you having an actual vested interest in it you having a history with it makes it even more meaningful i would think yeah yeah no and it going through attorneys actually immigration attorneys don't have the greatest reputation it's always uh they did nothing for my case and uh, we had an attorney that you know defrauded my father um so so i hope 
to not be that. I hope to be, you know, a glimmer of hope for what's said about immigration practitioners. I always hear people talk about their family lawyer and terrible things. I haven't heard the immigration thing. Oh, immigration. The thing is that because it's federal law and you can, you know, be barred anywhere and, and practice immigration, it seems to be the fallback for a lot of people really? that aren't necessarily passionate about it uh, because, you know, oh, immigration work. All you need to do is be barred anywhere and you can just go before the court. No big deal. So and sometimes you see it in immigration court when you realize that it's an attorney who doesn't ordinarily practice immigration law, who's in front of the judge. And you just feel terrible for uh, those respondents that are not being represented to the, the fullest capacity. Years ago, I looked into it. I was um, had a lot of workers' comp clients on the eastern shore of Maryland in the chicken plants and related industries who had immigration issues. So I took a course with the state bar, and all I took away, all I took it literally, all I took away from it was, unless you're going to do it all the time, don't even try. You don't dabble with immigration. Yeah, yeah, but you do find that people do dabble. Yeah. No, I don't do things unless I know what I'm doing. Uh, so do you, if someone were to ask you what has been your most satisfying case in the past couple of years, what comes to mind? Well, I had one where it was a respondent who had applied for asylum based upon sexual orientation from Uruguay and he had been denied relief even though he had plenty of evidence to support the fact that he had been abused while he was in the military and uh, due to his sexual orientation and the problem he had was that he applied for asylum based upon sexual orientation in texas um so the decision by the judge was riddled with preconceptions and uh, about what it means to be LGBT. And then he appealed the decision to the Board of Immigration Appeals. And this was during maybe the late, the late 90s. And so the BIA automatically affirmed the decision from the judge and he was stuck with a removal order for a long time. And he was married to a US citizen later on um, after DOMA uh, got repealed. Um, so in 2014, he married his longtime partner, and then we went through the process of, you know, of having the, the spouse petition for him, and then reopening the case, uh, going back to Texas and filing a motion to reopen based on, based on changed circumstances, the fact that he was not eligible for adjustment, and it was a long, hard battle um, to actually get it reopened, and then he, during the interview, for um, to determine whether or not the marriage was legitimate to the I-130 interview. Um, at the conclusion of the interview, the USCIS officer told us, um, there's someone here waiting to speak to you. And it was ICE. Um, so it, at the end of his interview, they were ready to go detain him because there, is, there was a yeah. removal order in place. So it took you know, about an hour or two or talking to ICE please just pay, place him into like an alternative um, supervision program so that you do not detain him. Let's wait for what's going to happen with the court in Texas to see if they're going to reopen. And thankfully, I mean, he was placed on what's called ISAP, which is like a supervision program uh, 
and they had someone come to his home every week. It was really invasive, but it, the alternative was either he remained in detention the entire right. time or he was, you know, oh. removed to um, uh, Uruguay. And thankfully, you know, we were able to get it reopened and now it, he became a lawful permanent resident. And at this point, he's now ready to apply for citizenship. And that was one of the ones where I was ecstatic that it, the system actually worked the way it, it should have. Someone who was denied relief earlier now found, found himself under new circumstances and we were able to reopen. Um, right now, if I will had this case right now, I would tell him that it's very unlikely that the case would be open. How do you talk ICE agents who are standing there with a lawful order to, to t- detain this guy? How do you talk them out of it? I mean, well, I don't even understand thankfully, the USCIS officer was a great help because the ICE officers entered the room. And I, I already had my brief prepared in anticipation of the I-130 being approved because this was a relationship for many years. So we had so much evidence of the bona fides of the relationship okay. that I was confident that was, this was going to get approved. But I kept telling me, well, I don't have an approval notice. And the USCIS officer chimed in and said, I am about to approve today, uh, so it'll be approved in the system. So I, it was basically <laughs> me going, well, you've heard it here from the officer. So as soon as I have the approval notice in hand, this brief that I have a copy of right here, I can give you a courtesy copy, it'll be filed as soon as I have that, that approval notice. And that went a long way to have the officer say, all right, okay, we'll go ahead and put him under supervision rather than going ahead and detaining him. So are there any differences in different jurisdictions? The law is the same, but how about procedure? Uh, Procedure, yes, you do deal with quirks when it comes to, well, this particular office likes to do things this way, this particular office likes to do things this other way, especially with USCIS. Like what, what, what we found is that under, in certain jurisdictions, USCIS will consider something an admission and something not an admission. So for immigration law, in order to be able to apply for a green card inside of the US, if you're married to a US citizen, mm-hmm. for example, you need a lawful admission. You need to have entered with a visa with permission. So there are people who entered unlawfully crossing the border who then acquired TPS, temporary protected status, and they've traveled to their home countries on advanced parole, and then they come back. So here in Vir- Virginia, the local office, the Fairfax office, it, it does the Washington, D.C. also uh, adjudications. They consider that an admission. So you left and you came back with permission. Mm-hmm. Some other jurisdiction, jurisdictions have said, no, that's not an admission. So you are required to go back to your home country and be interviewed at the U.S. Embassy abroad and come back with an immigrant visa. And that creates a whole slew of problems because you need to go ahead and apply for a waiver for forgiveness for the fact that you've been unlawfully present for more than a year. Because if you leave to go to your interview after being unlawfully present for more than a year, you're stuck outside for 10 years if you haven't been forgiven for your unlawful presence. So it's much better to apply for adjustment of status here. 
than it would be in other places. So immigration law is one of those that's quirky in that sense. And you're, you're also subject to um, laws of the, the circuit that you're practicing in. Um, the fourth circuit is thankfully pretty good about uh, about stuff like admission, stuff like um, a PSG, a particular social group when you're applying for mm -hmm. asylum, versus other circuits, not not so much. I uh, had people ask me for workers' comp mostly why they need a lawyer. What if they read up on all the law? Maybe they've been handling the, the case themselves for a little while. And uh, I said, you can know every case ever done. You can know the whole statute. But what you don't know are, because workers' comp is a small community, immigration probably is too, where knowing the people makes a huge difference. Knowing the commissioners aren't that many makes a big difference. So it's knowing what happens in the halls is so much more important than just knowing the cases. Uh, personality, it, all those things can get you such a long way. Yeah, no, it, when workers' comp... Okay, so when I started off, I was working for a firm that did workers' comp cases, and I went to one mediation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't, I still don't understand what was going on, and it had to have been a court from like the personalities. Um, the attorney that I was working with, I guess he already knew who he was up against sure. because the decision had already been made before we stepped into the room. Like, it seems like we were going through the motions and there were some niceties involved, but it's like, we are going to give you X percent. And yeah, it's, I will say you're doing good work because that's not work that I <laughs> would be a fan of doing, especially going ahead and telling someone, yeah, you see that hand that you have mangled? Um, they're, they're only considering that, that you know, yes. 20%. What? It's, it's only worth this, disabled? but yeah. I can't tie my shoes. I know, but a hand's only worth this. And yeah. it's very different in DC versus Maryland, but still, yeah, it's a very esoteric thing. It's kind of arcane. But yeah. the people who do it, the funny thing about workers' comp, you get together a bunch of workers' comp lawyers. Not only do we enjoy talking about it, we're fascinated by the topic. <laughs> and I don't think it interests anyone else. It could, it's not like, oh, this murder case I had. Okay, people love to hear my murder cases. But the comp cases, well, but you know, what do you do? And then you explain, oh, that sounds really, really aggravating. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. But it's it's so important. You make such a difference in people's lives. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, I couldn't imagine turning to, okay, so what percentage is this limb worth? That is nuts. Everything has value. So uh, <laughs> outside of your legal work, what do you like to do? Um, well, back in the good old days where we still interacted with people, uh, concerts. Concerts was my go-to form of entertainment. My husband and I like going to music festivals um, and seeing live music. That's what we're about. And well, I, I had a, a child nine months ago, so mm -hmm. I don't know what that looks like these days because I was pregnant for a while, so I wasn't going to concerts, and then COVID-19 happened, so, so now I'm not going to concerts. I so see children we'll see. at concerts. Kids, oh, uh, yeah, with their little headphones. The headphones, of course. My younger son has Asperger's, he's very high-functioning, but neurologically, as a child, he was very sensitive to loud noises, but he loved music, loved music. He's still obsessed with music. And he's 20, uh, he's 25. 
So we go to, I mean, to, to this day, his hands will come up over his ears. He doesn't want to leave, but it's just overwhelming. Yeah. We're, we're in Disney World. I was running my last marathon and uh, we're on the boardwalk. So they have every night they have fireworks. So he's like, I'm not scared. I'm not scared. We go now. I'm not scared that this hand, oh. Yeah, I have a cousin who has Asperger's, same thing. It's like he loves the experience, but it becomes too much of, of what's going on. It, it's like overwhelming, too much of a good thing. And so he has to either close his eyes sometimes a little bit or muffle his ears just to be able to experience it in a way that is enjoyable to him. I've seen grown-ups do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just everyone has their own their own issues, their own quirks. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you have a nine-month-old. Yeah. Who sounds like happy, healthy? Yeah, happy, healthy. We're going to a, we're going through a slight sleep regression where he doesn't want to sleep, but you know we're getting over it. I was told this last a couple of weeks, and then he goes back to normal sleeping through the night. We will see. I hope that works out. <laughs> yeah, you have a busy day ahead. Yeah, yeah, trying to catch up on stuff for the weekend, calling back clients and getting stuff filed because despite COVID-19, USCIS is still processing applications. The only thing that's closed are the US embassies. So that step has been halted, but everything else seems to be running as it was. So how much do you have to travel if you have cases in different states? It depends what kind of case it is. So sometimes like I have clients in the West Coast that just wanted me to file spousal petitions. Mm -hmm. I don't need to go to the West Coast at all. I just file the paperwork on their behalf and we wait. I prepare them for their interviews. Now at that point, if they're scheduled for an interview, I prep them for it and they can decide whether or not they want me to go with them. In which case, yes, I will make the track and I'll go out there. Um, but usually if it's a straightforward case, like we've been married for years, we have this, these many children, yeah, they're going to grant this. Mm -hmm. So I prep them for it and tell them, good luck. Call me after the interview. Let me know what's, what happened. And everything turns out okay. Not but the Texas case you had to go. Oh, for that. No, that one was all uh, filing briefs. There was no me going in person. I've only appeared in Texas telephonically. Uh, for cases. That one I, I haven't had to go. So the argument you were having with uh, the, the agents and... Uh, oh, that was here. He oh, lives here. here now. Yes. Okay. So the reopening the case. So he applied for asylum in Texas and it was denied. But then over the years, he moved up here. So when he was applying for adjustment of status through the husband, was um, it was here. So that's that why we had to go to the interview here. And ICE got little red flag, there is someone with a removal order who's going to show up on this day to find out if his marriage is legitimate. Oh, awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. You're welcome. Good to speak to you. Hope you have a wonderful day. This is us you signing too. off. All right. Take care. Take care.